0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net Hey, let's uh, let's do a little something different this morning. If you have your Bibles open, uh, we're going to be in two spots primarily this morning. One of those spots is Luke 14 verses 25 through 35. You can put a little ribbon in there or put a thumb in there, but I wanted to begin this morning by reading a psalm with you a little bit. We've done this in the past, but I think what we'll do, if you guys will join me, if you're comfortable with it, I'm reading out of the ESV translation. I want to read Psalm 103, verses 1 through 19, and I'll tell you what, I'll read the odd verses, if you guys would join me in the even verses, it'll be awesome to just lift up our voices one more time as we read a psalm together. So Psalm 103. While you're flipping pages, I will uh, pray one more time, asking God for mercy this morning. Lord, we are here for no other reason than to bring you praise, and bring you honor, bring you the worship that you rightfully deserve. Have your way in our gathering. God, we thank you for the ability to, to sing songs of praise to you. And God, this morning we thank you for your word. What a great gift it really is. See God, speak this morning. We we just humble ourselves before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. amen. All right, Psalm 103. I'll read the odds if you guys would join me in the even verses. We'll go through verse 19. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, So great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him, for He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As a man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone in its place, knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, last one, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments." The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Guys, this morning we begin uh, our new series on discipleship. Very excited about this series, of course. Our hope is that it is both challenging and encouraging and I will just say right now that this morning's text, the, the very first text that we're going to address in this series, is just that. It is very challenging to us. It's one of the hardest things, I believe, that Jesus ever said. So with that, what I wanted to do this morning, knowing that we're going to go into this text that's, that's very difficult. I'll just give a spoiler, right? We're going to talk about counting the cost of discipleship. What I wanted to do is begin this morning in the word with you all in Psalm 103, heeding the exhortation of David in that Psalm, verse 2, to forget not the benefits of the Lord. See, knowing that we're going to talk about the cost of following Jesus, what I wanted to do is start off the morning by talking about all the things that we as children of God have because of the Lord and our relationship with Him. So if you guys would humor me for a little bit, I just want to talk about some of these benefits because the reality is that the human brain has a tendency to remember things uh, in the past that are horrible. We remember the, the most intricate details about the worst days of our life, but somehow we can forget the best things that we have because of Christ. So as we just read in the psalm, right, we we can first consider this morning that the steadfast love of God is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. We read in this Psalm 103 that our sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah chapter 1 tells us this, that though our sins were like scarlet, they've been made white as snow. God himself crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. Again, in Psalm 103, we read that God works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. What an amazing thing. We remember this morning that God is our heavenly father, that when we were saved, we were transferred from the domain of darkness into his kingdom of marvelous light and adopted into his family so that we're no longer orphans, but that we have a father and the best father at that. This morning we are reminded of the reality that we have eternal life in Christ, right? This eternal life that begins with knowing the Father now because of this reconciliation that we have because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And and we know that this eternal life, knowing God, worshiping God, is going to extend into all eternity as we get to spend forever with our Lord. but there's even yet more benefits, right? We remember this morning that we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And not only peace with God, but we have access to God through the blood of the cross so that you and I in Christ can come, as Hebrews tells us, boldly to the throne of grace that we might receive help in time of need. And if you know all these things already, perhaps uh, you'll you'll know as well. I'll just rattle a few off. Right, Jesus said that we have in Him abundant life, that we have fullness of joy, that we have it can have a peace that surpasses understanding in God. Second Peter 1 tells us that, that by this Holy Spirit indwelling in us, we're partakers of the divine nature. We have fellowship with God, and we can't forget this one, and you guys obviously know the benefit because you're here, but we have fellowship with one another. We have the church, and that is a glorious, glorious gift. There are so many benefits that it would be impossible for us to number them all. And, and we can just sit back and we can praise God. But I don't know about you, but sometimes I just forget the simple truth. And I need to be reminded of these things. And if I'm honest with you, in my preaching, uh, I, I don't talk about these benefits so much I don't spend that much time on them. Why? Because because there's so many preachers in our day. That's all they talk about is, is the great stuff that comes with Jesus. They don't talk about counting the cost. And even so, they'll lie to people in their congregations and tell them. They'll take it a full step further. They'll tell them that, hey, if you come to Jesus, you'll get health and wealth and prosperity. And in doing this, they're not lifting up Jesus as the glorious king and true treasure of the universe. But instead, they're presenting Jesus as a means to an end. I don't want to do that the true treasure of christianity the true treasure of following christ is christ himself but as we've just read it is biblical for us to sit back and remember the benefits of god to exhort our souls to remember all that he is and all that he's done for us and as christians guys we should be rejoicing in these things all of the time we should be rejoicing in these things all of the time With all that in mind, as I've mentioned already today, we're going to see that although salvation in Christ is offered as a free gift of grace to any who would believe in Jesus through faith, although reconciliation and peace with God is offered freely as a gift of grace to any who would believe in Jesus, this is what we're going to learn today, that receiving that free gift... Being a partaker of the benefits of Christ, or as we're going to read, responding to the call to follow Jesus, does in fact come at a cost. It does in fact come at a very high Price. But before we even jump into this, we all know this to be true, right? Because what good thing in life doesn't come at a cost, right? I think about the Olympics. It's a thing. I don't know how many of you guys have been watching the Olympics. It's a blast. But you look at these athletes, right, and they get to compete on the world stage, and they get this experience for the rest of their lives. They get to tell them, like, tell all their family and friends when they're 90. They can tell their great-great-great-grandkids, like, I was in the Olympics one day. They could just, like, they're rejoicing in this. It's such a big deal. But we all know that these people didn't get to the Olympics without blood, sweat, and tears. Hours upon hours upon hours of hard work. athletes in sports, same thing, musicians, the same thing. I was playing guitar with my son Nate the other day and we're just like, they're just strumming and Lucy is strumming on the guitars. And so I start playing something and it was so funny to me because Nate's looking at my guitar and he goes, how do you do that? And he's looking at my guitar as if the guitar is the thing that's enabling me to play a song that actually sounds like a song. And he's like, Mine doesn't have that. If mine had that little thing, I'd be able to do that. I'm like, well... Nate, if you're a loner in high school and you sit in your room all day and play guitar instead of hang out with people, then you may be able to play an instrument one day. That's what it requires, right? To be an Olympian there's a cost. To be a professional athlete there's a cost. To be able to be a musician and play an instrument, well there is a cost, but with all those things, if you ask an Olympian or musician, you say, hey, was all the grind worth it? Were the blood, sweat, and tears worth it to get to where you are today? And every single one of them would say, yeah, absolutely. And I'm just gonna give away the end of my sermon right now. The same thing is true with Christ. Is the cost that we're gonna talk about worth it? Absolutely. Is the price that we're gonna that we're gonna address right here is it worth paying? Without a doubt. Nonetheless, as we're gonna read right now, the cost must be considered. For all who would come to Jesus, because as we're going to find, Jesus didn't mince his words, avoiding the cost is not an option. The cost is non-negotiable. It must be paid. So if you would, open up to Luke 14, starting in verse 25. We're going to begin to see the terms that Jesus lays out for what it takes to be his follower or his disciple. Starting in verse 25, I'll read the whole thing and then we'll walk through it one verse at a time. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... We'll begin in verse 25, walking through this one verse at a time. First thing we take note of is it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. There's two things we need to look at right here in this very first verse that sets the context the rest of our passage. The first thing I want to take note of as as I was reading, as I'm studying this, this kind of came, uh, came up. The first thing we're going to look at is this, that this great crowd was no doubt mixed company. If you've followed through the Gospels, you've read through the Gospels, then you know that great crowds were not something new to Jesus. He was often surrounded by great crowds. And and I'll just walk you through some of the reasons why people were around him all the time. Obviously, sometimes people followed him because they were genuinely his disciples. So there were disciples in this group that he's addressing and and sometimes people followed him because they or, or some family member needed to be healed of a disease and so they would bring Jesus just tons and tons of people that needed to be healed of infirmities or diseases. This one's funny and actually can relate to this. Other times people followed him because they wanted free food from him, right? When Jesus took the, the loaves of bread and the fish and he multiplied them, all of a sudden more people showed up. And then he said, "Now you guys are just here because you want food from me. And he talks, and of course, he made it some deep spiritual truth and teaching right after that. But I always thought that was funny. And again, as a man, I can relate. If someone's going to give me free food, I'll probably show up at their door. And then we often read, as you guys probably know, if you know the Bible, right? Pharisees were often part of this crowd. Religious leaders that that weren't submitted to Jesus' lordship, but instead they were were listening to everything he said, trying to trap him in his words. Because he challenged their lifestyle, they didn't like him at all. There were all kinds of people in this gathering, right? You had people like Peter... We'll get into this maybe a little later, but Peter, if you remember when Jesus said, hey, follow me, what did Peter do? He just dropped his net, he quit his profession, and he just started following Jesus. And Peter had a rocky road, but uh, he was a genuine disciple, so Peter was there. Just to kind of continue belaboring this point, there's people like Judas in the crowd, right? Judas was one of the twelve, and what do we know about Judas? We know how it ended for Judas, and so we know that, that all the while he's following Jesus, but his heart is not right. He perhaps says all the right things, the same things as the other disciples. He talks like them, but he's kind of a fake disciple. He's still in love with the world. We know that he sold jesus over for some pieces of silver revealing this idol in his heart that jesus wasn't his lord he still had this love and desire for money and riches that caused him to do some really dumb things and then of course in the crowd you'd have skeptics skeptics that weren't sure what to think about jesus and his teaching and you know, my point is in the large crowd there were representing people from all different walks of life and all different spots when it comes to their commitment to in relationship with Jesus. And so why is this the first thing we're talking about? Because as we consider the the nature of this text being preached this morning, we need to realize that this crowd in this gym is probably very much like the crowd that day. I'm not going to assume that everybody in this gym is in the same spot as it comes to their relationship with Jesus. Same thing, there's genuine disciples in this room. My hope is that every single person in this room would be a genuine disciple. But there's also probably skeptics. There's some that have heard about Jesus and they're like, I don't know about this. I'm going to show up this morning and I'm going to hear what this guy has to say from this book that people claim is of divine origin. And then, of course, I I gotta be honest, right? There's people in this room that, that probably think that they're good with God when perhaps they're, they're more like a disciple that talks the talk, but they're not yet fully committed to Christ. There's still idols in their heart that are preventing them from jumping all in with their relationship with the Lord. Again, this group must be a lot like the group that Jesus was addressing on that day. So again, as we consider these words, we're going to look at what Jesus said to the crowd and then perhaps what you're going to find is that you may feel like the Lord's speaking directly to you if you're in one of these spots as we walk through these verses. That's the first thing we're going to look at. The second thing I want to address, and this is kind of a side note, is interesting Verse 25 again, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned to them and said, we already read it, I already mentioned it's one of the hardest things Jesus ever said, and as I read this I go, wait a minute, most people would assume that if you're trying to start a religious movement or you're trying to start like a movement of some kind, what you want is a mass following. What you want is large crowds. And I'll tell you right now, this was not what Jesus was after. Which is specifically why, even though he had the large crowd, he tells them something that's brutally hard to swallow. And and I think it's important to note for us too, and this is what I'm getting at, is as we enter this series in discipleship, I think we as a church need to be careful to model our ministry after Jesus' ministry. Somewhere along the line in churches in America, we've made it a point to say, hey, if you have a very, very, very large church with tons of people, that must mean you have a successful ministry. And we say, oh, you're a good pastor? Oh, so you serve at a megachurch, church, Right. I, I'm serious, we me and Sam Peck used to joke about this, but when you go to church planting uh, conferences, it's like this pride game where you show up and, and everybody, that's the first question everybody asks, hey, what's up, man, what city are you from? How big's your church, bro? As if the size of your congregation Is telling to how fruitful your ministry is. And and I'm looking at this going, no, it's not it at all. Jesus wasn't after the large crowds. What we're going to find is that Jesus was after genuine disciples. It wasn't just about the numbers. Jesus was after genuine disciples. With that said, let's look at verse 26, the very first thing that Jesus says that is again very hard to swallow. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple What in the world is Jesus talking about Mitch? Sh- didn't we ju- didn't we just spend 8 weeks in 1 John being told like 47 times to love one another? So how is it that Jesus comes in and says, "Hey, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple you need to hate your father and mother wife children brothers even your own life how can these two things coexist and and I'll just a little bit of explaining makes this very easy to understand we're going to find that this word hate and what Jesus is saying lives in perfect harmony with 1 John when we understand what it is saying And first of all, it is important to note that Jesus is using very provocative, shocking language on purpose. He's trying to get people to think. He's trying to ruffle some feathers a little bit. But this is, in, in essence, what Jesus is saying. If they were going to follow him, if they were going to be his disciples then their relationship with Him had to be far and away the most important relationship in their entire lives. Their love for Jesus had to be far and away the greatest love of their lives. In other words, He had to sit unchallenged on the throne of their hearts. All other relationships needed to pale in comparison to this one. Their love for all other people in their life needed to now pale in comparison to their love for their King. In other words, and this is a word that I think is going to come up a lot this morning, Jesus needed to be preeminent in their lives. He needed to be... First, with zero rivals. And again, this same thing is true for you and I today. It is either that Jesus is preeminent in your life. He's first in your life. Everybody else you love less compared to Him. Or He says you cannot be His disciple. It's non-negotiable. You must love everyone less compared to Him. If you see the value and the treasure of Christ's glory, it's the only logical thing to do because He's that much more worthy of love than anything or any one. And so first of all, what the people in the crowd would be thinking and what you and I should be thinking right now if we're in this room and we say that we love Jesus but our husband or our wife or our father or mother or our kids have been elevated to the point of being an idol so much so that they're more important to us than our relationship with Jesus then there is an idolatry issue that needs to be repented of because that's not how this works. Jesus has to be first. I don't want to puff up my wife, but I will. And this, I want to share a little story that that might help you remember this. Uh, And just an example of this, I want to share a story of a speech that I gave at my wedding. My wedding was to very mixed company, right? A lot of non-believers at our wedding, a lot of people... That ultimately thought, because they didn't know the love of Christ, that, that the love between a husband and a wife was the, the, the pinnacle of human love it was the the highest possible love that anyone could ever experience and so here are Jesse and I in the company of a whole bunch of non-believers and I just remember I stood up during my speech and and I just said something that, that I bet was pretty shocking to people who again don't know the Lord I, I stood up and I said listen I have confidence In this woman, I have confidence in this marriage for one specific reason, and it's this, that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my wife loves Jesus way more than she loves me, and that actually brings me so much comfort that's the way that it's supposed to be her priorities are in order she is so in love with jesus that she's never going to look to mitch to fulfill or satisfy the desires of her soul because i just cannot do it that spot on the throne of her heart, is reserved for Jesus alone. And, and if you know me, I know what you're thinking, Mitch, anybody in their right mind would love Jesus over you. I know, I know, there's not much to love here. But still, I just wanted to use this as an example. Jesus is always first. It is all or nothing. But he's not even done in talking about other family members. He's not, only, he's not even done just talking about other earthly relationships. I love this. He gets down to the core. And if we're honest, this one probably challenges us even more than those first few words. I'll just read this one more time. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, dot, 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 even his own life, end of verse 26, he cannot be my disciple. I don't know about you guys, but I am so selfish. I love myself. And again, there's not even much, I'm deceived because there's not much to love, but I'm so selfish. But as we just read, coming to Jesus means dying to yourself. You trust in Christ as Lord and King and this means that you're renouncing your own kingdom. You're renouncing lordship and giving up control over your life. Listen, if you love yourself more than you love Christ, you are on a slippery, slippery slope. He is to be preeminent Over all earthly relationships, you're to love Him far, far more, even than you love yourself. He is most important. Let's move on to verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wow, what great news, guys. Hey, if you really want to be my disciple, if you really want to follow me, check this out. There's only one way. You have to pick up a cross. Get your instrument of torture ready and let's go. The crowd would have known exactly what Jesus is talking about. Perhaps we're not as familiar with this idea of crucifixion. Obviously, you probably have a cross necklace and maybe some crosses in your house, but but we, I think, over thousands of years have forgotten just how brutal a death on a cross was. It was is an absolutely horrendous way to die. It was so brutal that it was reserved for just the worst of the worst. It's so painful that perhaps you've heard this. We get this word in, in our English language from crucifixion excruciating. And not only that, but as I'm studying this, it made sense, right? You, you think about the humility of taking up your cross, whether it be all the criminals that went before and after Jesus or Jesus himself as Rome ultimately says you're guilty of these laws, like you've broken these laws, you're under the guilt of this so much so that you have to bear a cross publicly and everybody's lined up just looking at you as you're just humiliated, walking bearing this cross up to the place that you were ultimately going to die. So Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to be my follower, then it's going to be a very tough road. You have to pick up your cross. You have to be humiliated. You have to go through suffering. In order to come. And again, I'll say this this is crazy. This is non negotiable. And I will say right now, right, this looks different for everybody. Everybody's cross is different, people suffer for Christ to differing degrees. We're so blessed to be able to meet here in this place with no co- no government police coming in telling us we can't meet. Maybe you face persecution because of Christ in the way that your friends think you're a loser if you're in high school or they make fun of you because you're unwilling to partake in some of the worldly things that they do. But but that's like there's so much worse, right? When other nations of the world, people are getting... Killed for their faith, right? This has happened all throughout history. Everybody's cross is different to bear, but the reality is this. Taking up our cross is non-negotiable. So if you're ready to follow Christ, if you're going to come after Him, get ready for excruciating pain. Get ready for suffer. Hop on the train because it's time to go get crucified. Sounds awesome. And, and right now I just want to pause before we move on to the next part of the text and then just ask this one question. What, what is Jesus doing right now? I mean, I already gave it away because I said that he's after genuine disciples and not just crowds, but but it almost seems like Jesus is trying to convince people not to follow him. And if I'm honest, reading these first two verses, I'm like, he's doing a pretty good job. Like, uh, I don't know about that, Lord. Like, I kind of like my car. I don't want to walk on a road of shame with a cross on my shoulders. But An extreme shift in relational priorities across what, what is Jesus doing? And I think the answer to this question is going to provide some clarity in, in our text moving forward. Listen, I mentioned this again. Genuine disciples, what he was after... His desire, we know that God's a God of love. His desire is for people to be saved. And in order for these people to be saved, they needed to know the truth. Jesus knew that you can sit in a crowd and be unconverted. Jesus knew that you can be hyped up on some new religion or some new experience but still be far from God. He knew that you can play religion and sit in a church and stay, not full, you can stay uncommitted to Jesus as Lord. In other words, you can slip through the cracks. You can be unrepentant in a crowd and Jesus would have none of it because that doesn't benefit anyone. large gatherings were not the purpose he was after the hearts of the people so again he wasn't convincing people not to follow him of course but this is what he was doing in his in his mercy in his love he's simply filling them in on the truth that if they were to come to God, it was going to be through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way except through Him. He's the door. He's the gate. It had to be through Him. You can't get to the Father except through Him. But if you're going to come to Him, you have to do so on God's terms and not your own. You have to do so on God's terms and not Your own. That was true for the crowd back then. It's true for us. It's true for every human being. There was no way to be saved, but God in his mercy made a way as he sent Jesus to live a perfect life and and die a death on a cross, bearing the wrath of God for our sins, and then he conquered death three days later, rose from the grave, and he offers this salvation through what he's done to anybody who would come to believe, put their faith in him, but those are the only terms. There's no other way for it to go down. And again, although that salvation and reconciliation, peace with God is offered as a free gift, as we're reading right now, receiving that gift following Jesus comes at a great cost. So again, as Jesus lays out the terms, says some pretty shocking things that were true about the terms, about the cost to follow Jesus. We continue on a little bit, and and we read about that. We read about counting the cost in verse 28. If you'd look down at your Bibles and read with me, it says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Guys, only a foolish man would start a project without doing some sort of cost analysis, right? Ensuring that he had what it took to finish the project or else... His reputation is ruined and every time he or somebody else walks by the ruins of his once lofty project, he's mocked. He's mocked right here. He says, yeah, of course, we've already read some of it, right? The cost is exceedingly high. Consider these things before you jump into following Christ. Count the cost lest you jump in prematurely and you begin this journey only to grow weary, only to grow tired, and only to quit and not finish the journey want to pause here as we're looking at counting the cost and, and We've already seen a few things, but I just want to talk more about the cost of following Jesus for us. And, and we don't have just this portion of Scripture. We have the entire Bible that talks about this. And I actually want to read uh, an excerpt from a book that's on this topic that I think uh, does a pretty good job of summarizing what it costs to be a disciple of Christ. And, and I'll just read it for you if you guys would just listen. What will it cost to follow Christ? Well, it will cost you choosing to go your own way. It will cost you the freedom to do your own thing. It will cost you a life of ease. It will require that you no longer live for yourself. You must burn your bridges behind you. There is no turning back. It will cost you holding on to your self-righteousness. Ooh, that's a tough one. It will cost you cherishing your sin. That's hard too. We love our sin, don't we? It will cost you the control of your life. It will cost you the pursuit of the world. You must count the cost of giving up your own views about life. You must count the cost of forsaking friendship with the world. You must be willing to follow God's will. Following Christ will cost you popularity with certain friends. It may cost you business success. And it will most likely cost you the applause of the world. If we're to summarize, perhaps uh, this will help us remember what it costs to follow Jesus. The reality is it will cost you everything. You pay the price, or again, you cannot be his disciple you give your everything to Jesus not holding anything back all in or you cannot be his disciple here's what it requires and we see this in verse 31 it requires your full surrender It requires your full surrender let 's read verse thirty one it says or or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he 's able with ten thousand to meet him who comes against him with twenty thousand, and if not, while the others yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks. For terms of peace. I love this. You guys know this most likely, but pre-Christ you're actually counted as an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of God. So it's like here's you with your little kingdom and your little army, and you're actually opposed to the God of the universe who's a much more supreme king with a much, much greater army that can wipe you out in a second. And every single human being has a choice to make. As they're walking out, and understanding. That they're about to encounter King Jesus in war because they're his enemy, they have a decision to make. Am I going to go out and fight, even though I'm outnumbered and my defeat is sure? Or are you going to do what he says in verse 32? If not, while the other's yet a great way away, he sends off a delegation and asks. For terms of peace, that is the beautiful picture of what it looks like, or what it's requir- What is required to follow Jesus is, is yes, all these things we have to give up for the sake of Christ, and it could pretty much all be summarized. And you take everything in your life and you surrender it one hundred percent, completely to Christ as Lord. That's the only option: surrender, full surrender. Again, guys, I I don't mean to just beat this point home, but Jesus is abundantly clear, and I think it just is worth saying for us, guys, you just can't stand on the fence. When it comes to your relationship with God, when it comes to your walk with Jesus, your commitment to Him and His kingdom, there's no middle ground. Jesus said in Matthew twelve thirty, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Luke 4.4, 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. So often we think, yeah, I'll take Jesus as this little side add-on if it can make my life better, but I also want to hold on to the things over here that I know are not pleasing to Him, the things of the world, and I'm just going to live in this middle ground where I'll go to church on Sunday and I'll do my own thing the rest of the week, and I say, no, that actually cannot happen. You can't live in the middle with one foot in the world and one foot with the Lord. There's no neutral in this. You're all in or not at all. And hear me out. I know that there's a process in this. I know that there's a process, this full surrender, this diving in, it just happens over and over and over again. It's like this onion with a million layers, and the, the onions our soul, and God's like, I want you to fully surrender. We're like, yes, Lord, I'm all in. I'm not over here in the world anymore. I'm just diving in. I'm never looking back. I'm putting my hands to the plow, and if I look back, I'm unfit for the kingdom, so I'm going forward, and then all of a sudden, you start getting convicted about an idol in your life or something in your life that that's risen to a priority that's perhaps even above Christ. And you go, oh my goodness, I need to repent of that. And so you repent of that. And again, you open your hands, saying, Lord, I surrender everything I am to you. And then if you're like me, the next day something else arises and you're like, wow, an, a layer of the onion got peeled away, but here I am again as a follower of Christ. At one point I decided no matter what, I'm all in on Christ and here I am again having to surrender and surrender and surrender. It never ends. It's a continual raising of the white flag, a continual denying of self to say it's not about me, I'm not my own Lord, it's not about anybody else in this life, Jesus is Preeminent, all that I am is for all that he is. I'm not holding anything back because again, there is no middle ground on this at all. So I just I don't want anybody in this crowd to be deceived, right? I don't want anybody this morning to sit here and, and go, wow, well, yeah, I'm just gonna have one foot over here, one foot over here. It's like, no, please heed the words of Jesus. And, and heed my words. The words coming from the Word of God. And remember, Jesus wasn't speaking these words to condemn the crowd. I'll say it again. He wanted genuine disciples. That's what He was after. And and as, I begin to, as we begin to close, I just want to say this. And we're going to kind of loop back to how we started this morning in reading Psalm 103. And, and this is... This is so cool, guys, because as we talk about the cost of discipleship, I wanted to begin by talking about the benefits of Christ because there's a paradox here that we have to address. The price that you pay to follow Christ is very high. But all that is lost as you pay the price means absolutely nothing and is absolutely nothing compared to what you gain. Here's the paradox, Matthew 16, 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Here's the crazy thing. You can pursue the world and all that it has to offer. You can pursue sin. You can indulge in all things unholy and ungodly and perhaps gain the world in the process. But Jesus says, what good is that? Because in the end, you lose your life and you will forfeit your soul in the process. Here's the paradox, is that to follow Jesus, it costs your entire life. But if you reject the grace of Jesus, then in the end, it will actually cost you your entire life. And if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, what you actually find is life. The reality is this, guys, and, and... Please hear me, giving up everything, giving up everything, paying the highest price, and getting Christ is the best trade that anyone could ever make. The benefits far outweigh the costs, and it's not even close. The positives far outweigh the negatives, and it's not even close. The glory of Christ in life with Him far outshines the fleeting pleasures of the world, and it too is not even close. Consider these two parables in Matthew 13. You don't have to flip there. It's only two verses, but if you want to highlight Matthew 13, verses 44 and 45, I think we can get some clarity from these verses. And we are almost done, by the way. It says in verse 44 of Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Yes, the man and the merchant in the parables gave up everything. They sold all their had. But for them, it was the best transaction they could ever make. I love the the words that they use in verse 44. It says that he finds this treasure and he covered it up. Then he in his judgment, joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field why because the value of the treasure far surpassed the cost to get it the value of the pearl far exceeded the price that he had to pay to get it and that's how it is with us with the kingdom of God right we give up everything but we get the kingdom and we get the king of the kingdom and he again is the greatest treasure that we could ever find That's how it is with the kingdom of God following Christ. It will cost you everything, but what you get in return is simply invaluable. So, guys, as we begin this series on discipleship, looking at these very hard words, not hard to understand, but hard to swallow. We see the high cost of discipleship, but in this we also see the invitation that Jesus gave to the crowd that day that he also gives to each one of us. He says, if anyone comes to me, he said this in so many ways, if anyone would follow me, Come to me, believe in me. There's an invitation in that to anybody who would be willing to commit their all to Christ. There is life, glorious life for that person. There's forgiveness of sins. There is a relationship with the Father. There's all the benefits that we recounted and so much more that we read in Psalm 103. But every single person needs to make that personal decision with this invitation that Christ gives. When Jesus says, follow me, are you going to be like Peter perhaps or the disciples that just dropped their nets and followed Christ? Or or are you going to be like the rich young ruler when Jesus said, hey, sell all you have and follow me? And he loved his possessions so much that he wasn't willing to pay the cost to follow Christ and he walked away sorrowful Are you going to be like like the person when Jesus says, "Hey, come right now, follow me." And they just again drop everything they have and they follow full surrender, diving in, never looking back. Or are we going to be like Lot's wife? Okay, I'm thinking about Lot's wife when she's leaving her city and they told her, "Don't look back." And she ends up looking back because there was something in her that loved Perhaps the wickedness there or something of the old life. Guys, I just want to present this to you. Again, our desire in reading this is is not to make anybody feel condemned, but we just want everybody to know the truth that following Jesus is the best thing you could ever do. But please consider the cost of following because starting the journey is one thing. We want everybody to finish strong what we're doing here at Heritage, we want genuine disciples. We don't care about crowds. Trust me, you know it's easy to grow a church. Like we could have fog machines and cool lights and I could probably dress trendier and like I'd have a cool haircut and we could just put like the booming speakers and we could do so much to just get people in the building and it's like I I want people to come here, right? We want people to feel at home. We want people to to hear the truth of God's word and we want people to have fellowship. No doubt we want everybody who walks through the doors to feel welcome here. But, but just like Jesus, our goal isn't a huge crowd. What we want is genuine disciples. So as a church staff, that's what we're doing. We're trying our best to put our heads together, submit our plans to the Lord and say, Lord, what can we possibly do? How can we, how can we like, how do we see genuine disciples be made? And of course, it's a submission. It's a full surrender to Jesus. But we begin by this, to just put this before you, to say, hey, here's the invitation from Jesus. Each of us has to make a personal decision. Our encouragement would be to this. If you find yourself uh, unbelieving, Lord, put your trust and faith in Christ. There's no better thing for you to do. It comes at a cost, but it's more than worth it. If you're in this room and you're just a committed follower of Christ, praise God. You're like Peter and the other disciples sitting here listening to Jesus say this. And there's things in your life, layers of that onion. You're like, oh man, Lord, I need to give that up. Or perhaps, oh yeah, Lord, I've been idolizing that too much. And the Lord's speaking to your heart. Maybe you're here and you're like on the fence, right? You've been playing that game. Like, I played all my high school days. I was like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm going like, to get as close to the line of sin as I possibly can. It's like, no, don't play games. Dive in. He's more than worth it. You'll know. We don't have time. I'll, I'll invite Jesse and, and the crew back up. But I love this. We don't have time to read the rest, but I'll just close with that last verse, right? He just says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Guys, we're so excited about what God's doing in our church. I've never been more excited about what God's doing at Heritage than I am right now. And, and it's just the Lord's work. So we're going to continue to preach the gospel. We're going to continue to devote ourselves to prayer. We're going to continue to worship. We're going to continue to have fellowship. And we're going to continue to love one another. We're going to continue to submit ourselves to Christ, opening the scriptures, and say, wow, Lord, you're so good. And we're going to just, we want to see revival in this valley. We want to see God do something awesome. But I love that we're starting with this because you know what this tells each of us? That we're starting with the hardest thing I think Jesus ever said is we will never water down the truth to try to get people in these doors. We're never going to hide the truth from people. Jesus didn't mince words. We're not going to either, guys. Genuine disciples. Count the cost of discipleship and let's dive in in our relationships with the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we just, we read this and, and it's so funny considering all that you've done for us and all the benefits that we remembered in Psalm 103 and beyond. When we consider those things, the cost just seems so little, really. It's everything, but as Paul said, we can count all that stuff as rubbish compared to the glories of knowing Jesus Christ. So Lord, with humility and reliant upon your grace, we as a church family just proclaim, Lord, we're all in. If there's anything in us that we're holding back, Lord, pry it out of our hands that we might live with open hands. Would you be preeminent in everything that we do in our hearts, in our lives, and in this church, God, would you be preeminent? Our desire is to follow you. We love you so much and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.